Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Who I Became podcast. Now for those of you that are new here, my name is Simon Osimo and you can join me for weekly conversations with some really interesting people as I explore their personal stories, transformations and experiences that help educate, inform and inspire. Now on today's episode, I'm joined by Ross Duker. Now Ross is an internationally renowned criminologist and professor of criminology and former Fulbright scholar working in the UK and America, holding his Doctorate of Philosophy from the University of Strathclyde, Scotland. He's the author of several highly acclaimed books on criminology and his most recent book, Gangs and Spirituality, examines the role of religion and spirituality, including meditation in dissidents from crime and engagement from gangs from a global perspective. The Ross is also a dynamic life, performance and certified meditation coach. But before we dive into this week's content, I want to remind you that you can listen to the podcast wherever you consume your content and the video can be found on our YouTube channel at Simon Osimo. Now, if you get something from this conversation or believe that others will, it would mean the world to me if you would like and share with your circle of influence. Okay, so let's dive straight into this week's conversation with Ross Duker. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Who I Became podcast. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Ross Dukner. How are you doing today, Ross? Hi there, Simon. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, so you're like me, um, Ross, you're a bit unique, but you know, I'm an Englishman living in America, so I have a dual audience. So uh, I think my followers in England will be able to understand you. My American will mostly say, hey, that's an interesting accent. So I guess we should start with maybe telling people where, where you're from. Yeah, so I'm from uh, Glasgow uh, in Scotland. So it's, uh, Glasgow is uh, Scotland's largest city. And now, Ross, you are known, I've just got your, your part of your bio here, you know, you're one of these people, when I research you, there's a lot of information in there, but I try and summarise so my listeners get a good understanding as to where you are. So you sort of, um, you know, you're Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at University of West Scotland. You're the Assistant Dean Professor of Criminology and Criminal criminal justice at florida atlantic university which is a bit of an interesting one that you've got a scottish guy who's a dean and criminologist of uh, university in florida so we might have to touch on that a bit more now you've got your master's degree you've got your doctorate in sociology you're the author of three highly acclaimed books the gangs marginalized youth and social capital policing youth violence transatlantic connection uh, young people and social control and the one that i find most interesting is gangs and spirituality and actually has four books that you've got there really i have to correct myself i said three books so for gangs and spirituality i know we'll definitely touch on today and researching you on google like i do a lot of people everything you know you've got to believe everything that you see on google but that's interesting it talks about your work saying your scholarly work has been cited over 1500 times so um, you know there's a lot of lot of interest um stuff for that and maybe um by your by your expression you might not have even known that ross i'll tell you something new about yeah. yourself. well you're always learning something you, I, I should say that I'm, um, I'd love to be able to claim that, um, that, but I'm actually not a dean in Florida Atlantic University. I'm a visiting professor there, though. 
Uh, we're, we're close enough. You can. You, you didn't have to say that, but it's good. It keep, keep, keeps you honest. Keeps you honest. And one of the interesting things that like you do now, you know, you advise on many continents and you keynote speak. And, and what we haven't said is yet is you know, your focus is on gang intervention, spirituality, and policing. You know, you are internationally known uh, as a gang expert, and that's something we're very much going to dive into today. And obviously, you yeah. work with my good friend here in Minnesota, Dr. James Denzel of the Violence Project. So, um, but but interestingly, one of the, the new things you start to get onto is about your certified um, meditation um, coach. You spend a lot of time sort of coaching incarcerated prisoners with addictions and mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I've been really passionate about for for a number of years now, but uh, I, I trained uh, to become a certified mindfulness coach last year. And so, yeah, I do, I do quite a lot of that. Uh, voluntary work going into prisons and uh, just working with the guys there in in Scotland and um, yeah it's it's amazing to see how well they respond to things like mindfulness yeah so, so getting into a bit of your background about you know who you are Ross I mean one of the, the things is everyone has to start somewhere and before you're this internationally known gang expert you were a sort of a primary school teacher which I guess for the American audience is like kindergarten to sort of to, to fourth grade and and then you started to get into sort of um, views around sort of sectarian issues with maybe sort of um, football violence again you know soccer using an american word so maybe sort of tell us a bit about you know how did you how did your path in sort of understanding gang violence really really begin yeah it's a good question so yeah you're quite right i started off as a primary school teacher in glasgow and so my route into this and my interest had always been because i worked with children and young people um and then i made the transition to work in higher education i started on a seconded basis and initially um working in a university and uh, i was in the education department at that time and um i I had this idea that I would like to, during the time I was studying towards my PhD, I was doing a lot of field work in very disadvantaged communities in Scotland, working with children and young people. And I became very interested in the challenges that they were facing, you know. And uh, also, we've always had this historical thing in Scotland, unfortunately, with particularly in the west of Scotland, with sectarianism. Um, and that dates back um, to the time of the Irish migration. It's a long Foreign history Irish lesson then, Ross, isn't it? That's yeah, a long, long, yes. long history lesson. <laughs> yeah, a long history lesson. Of the, um, and after the Irish uh, famines and the migration to the west of Scotland, there were tensions emerged uh, between um, Irish Protestants uh, that had uh, migrated from Ireland and, and um, uh, Catholics in the, in the west of Scotland in Glasgow. And uh, that has continued and a lot of it has become associated, of course, with the two big uh, soccer teams in Glasgow, Rangers and Celtic. Thank you for Americanising it, Ross. I like that. Because yeah. <laughs> I should say you are in Scotland. We haven't mentioned that as yet, but you are actually in Scotland. Yeah. so. 
Yeah, so so I, I had this idea that I would like to do some research into, it's something that's always bubbling under the surface, unfortunately, in Glasgow. Uh, the football rivalry and Rangers predominantly having a Protestant religious uh, unionist following and Celtic more uh, a Catholic uh, following traditionally. And uh, so I was interested in looking at um, football rivalries, sectarianism, going out and asking young people in disadvantaged communities in Glasgow about their experiences of sectarianism. But when I went out there into the field, I had a funded study, funded by the British Academy, um, to do a study on sectarianism uh, and young people in Scotland. But when I went out and started doing all the interviews with young people, actually, I found that that wasn't really very important to them at all. What they were talking about was territorial gang rivalries and street rivalries in the housing estates, the housing schemes, as we call them in Glasgow. And from there, it just began. It began a journey for me. I became fascinated. I hadn't grown up in an area of Glasgow where I was aware of gang rivalries and territorial issues. So it was all quite new to me, really, as a researcher. And it got under my skin. And uh, it was something that I just became really passionate about and interested in. Yeah, and I know now uh, some of your research, and I can't remember where I, I read this, uh, Ross, but you know, I know you've researched gangs now in LA. It's quite a, quite a, a cross mix of countries today, but LA in the US, Denmark, Hong Kong, and Florida. Obviously, you know, you travel internationally. And yeah. so I know you research gangs in those different organizations, and Hong Kong's quite an interesting one. But what have you learned about some of the similarities between gangs and, and why people fall into gangs? Because that's quite a cross spectrum of nationalities I've just mentioned there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, Frederick Thrasher, who did the, the, the very first sociological study really into gangs in 1920 Chicago, um, had, you know, said in his work that no two gangs are exactly alike, you know, and I would certainly agree with that, having seen uh, gangs in so many different eclectic settings, uh, I would say that they very much differed in their form and their functioning in many ways and the culture in the gangs was very much uh, driven by the geographic historical and cultural specificities that formed the backdrop um, to the offending behaviour. Um, so, for instance, you know, in Glasgow, um, it's traditionally been knife crime that has dominated. But when you go somewhere like Los Angeles, of course, it's very much gun uh, crime and very much associated with the illicit drug markets, whereas in Glasgow, it's very much recreational violence, traditionally, uh, and not tied really particularly to uh, illicit drug markets. And then Hong Kong's very different again because you've got the triad gangs, the very much organised forms of criminality and really businessmen actually um, predominantly that are triad man, uh, gang members but um, similarities what I found was that even although the ages might differ the ethnicities might differ the weapons of choice the types of criminality they're involved in quite different from setting to setting what I found was the same everywhere actually was the root causes the reasons why these predominantly young men it was that I was working with had decided 
you know, had drifted into this lifestyle. And it was all about, it was about poverty, it was about social inequality, it was about difficult home lives, what we might describe as adverse childhood experiences, experiences of abuse and neglect in the family home. Maybe missing father figures often played a role. Um, and, uh, of course, being brought up sometimes in homes dominated by drug abuse and alcoholism sometimes uh, led them to seek out some kind of male attachment and some kind of sense of identity and status and the gang provided that um, it provided them with a kind of brotherhood uh, they seemed to welcome them in but ultimately, uh, what it led to was just more trauma. You know, they'd already suffered a lot of trauma in their lives, these guys, and they were introduced to more trauma because of the violent lifestyles they began to become involved in. So I would say that would be the, the, the huge similarity that no matter what setting I was in, it was often about those things, those drivers that led them into the gangs. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, when you come from being a, a primary school teacher, you know, sort of a, a kindergarten um, teacher, you know, you associate a lot of gangs with everything that you've really sort of said, you know, broken homes, loss of a father or an absent father, you know, battling addictions, that search of belonging that a lot of people um, tend to have in, in their lives. So, uh, you know, what have you learned about yourself then, Ross, when you've been working with these type of, of people where, you know, your life is more structured and you're working perhaps with youth where they're from an unstructured um you know you might have had a, a sort of a more stable environment that you grew up in you know and these are in unstable so so what have you learned about yourself as you interact with these young young youth yeah i mean i have learned an incredible amount from these guys um over the years i have to say they've inspired me in so many ways because against the backdrop of huge adversity uh and and challenge often they overcome um, such huge amounts of um, of challenges and uh, it's great you know for instance I've had the privilege of working with these guys when they're going through rehabilitation programs gang intervention programs and I've seen them coming out the other side you know and they transform their lives I've been able to do follow-up work where I've revisited places I've met these guys again and I've seen where they're at um, so it's given me a real sense of optimism actually in many ways uh, that in spite of the huge challenges a lot of these guys face, often they're able to turn their lives around. But there's also a lot of sad stories as well, of course, people who lose their lives to yeah. the gang culture um, or who, because of the stigma that they face, you know, not being able to get jobs because of criminal records, for instance, the addiction issues, the dependency issues um, that they often have, um, sometimes it holds them back and they end up back in the lifestyle again. Um, so I've learned a, an awful lot. And also what I, I suppose I've learned most about, which really struck me in the early days, was how privileged I my life has been, you know, because, um, you know, I did come from a, a stable home environment um, and lived in a, a fairly, my, my parents were working class and working class background. Um, but, you know, by the time I'd come along, they, they moved out of the the more socially deprived areas of Glasgow, you know, that I, I went to a decent school, you know, I had a support network around me. Um, and these guys, you, their stories are so harrowing sometimes, you know, when they share with you yeah. the catalog 
catalogue of of chaos sometimes that has characterised their childhood. Um, and so it's made me realise, I think, you know, um, to look well beneath the surface of the gang activity and the offending behaviour and look at the root causes. And, you know, the only way we can resolve these issues, uh, gang violence issues and offending really, is to be able to treat the causes, uh, the underlying causes. Um, And, you know, I think that's what's been the biggest lesson for me over the years. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think I mentioned to you before, there was a, a guy that I interviewed that actually um, committed murder, a guy called Lester Young. Very, you know, fascinating um, story. I had the privilege to interview him a, a few weeks back. And one of the things that he said to me, I can't remember if he said it during recording or afterwards, was that, you know, he was from a lot of um, sort of, not so much a broken home, but his mother passed when he was 16 and he was the last person to see her. And he wasn't very respectful to her and he never really dealt with that issue. Um, but he he said when he entered the criminal justice system as a broken man no one ever asked him are you okay or, or what is troubling you you know and that just yeah. that simple thing really fascinated me that all he's asking all he really wanted was someone just to ask him are you okay or what is what is the cause of this they kept just sort of trying to treat the the symptoms but not really understand you know what was going through his young man's man's head and it leads me nicely really on to you know one of um, i said three books earlier hopefully i'm now saying four i hope you haven't written more russell and getting this um this wrong but your, your book that really fascinated me was your um your gangs and spirituality and i spoke to dr james denzi before about this so uh, i'm disappointed that he kept you a secret and hadn't told me uh, about you because that, that's of interest to me you know and when i read your book there's two particular chapters in there uh, religious and spiritual dissidents from gangs and then warriors to, to peacemakers. So maybe we start off with the religious um, and spiritual dissidents to gangs. Maybe sort of tell us a bit about what that chapter is within your within your book. Yeah, well, that's a chapter that really kind of looks at the, the previous uh, research and the existing literature on religion uh, as an intervention to support um criminal desistance and also more widely than that also looking at wider more eclectic forms of spiritual interventions and uh, the impact that they can have so i start off by looking at um, some of the existing evidence uh, that suggests that religion for instance can um, be an important vehicle for some people to um, reform and uh, to desist from criminality. Um, so I draw upon some of the literature that suggests that religion is a form of social control, for instance, um, and uh, it provides you know a new framework and a structure, you know, for uh, a language and a framework for change. Uh, for instance, because people embrace a new set of values. So, for instance, if you become a Christian, you know, you adopt a new set of Christian values which mean which offending behaviour is not compatible with Uh, and also some of the literature suggests uh, that it can generate social capital you know so you're introduced to um, 
new networks, social networks, support networks. If you join a church, for instance, um, you gain fellowship with new people. You begin to hang around with different types of people uh, that offer you support, introduce you to opportunities for new networks, for new, even perhaps even new employability opportunities. Uh, and so, um, and also another important thing in the literature is that um, some people have suggested that religion can provide an important signal to others, a, a credible signal that you have moved away, you can disengage from the gang now because you've now found God. You know, and that, that is a credible signal and a, a justifiable reason why you might want to disengage with the gang. Um, but there are also critical perspectives on all of this. For instance, you know, that some people suggest uh, that, you know, some offenders when they're in prisons might hide behind religion, for instance, uh, to gain early release. Or, for instance, they might visit prison chaplains just because really um, they're looking for, you know, Playing the game a little bit. A different place to hang out, to get free coffee or biscuits or playing the game a little bit. Um, but I've also looked beyond religion um, at wider forms of spirituality. So I very much make the distinction in that chapter between religion and spirituality. Um, so religion being about uh, a kind of more formal faith, um, doctrine and worship shared within a group. But spirituality is much more difficult to define, actually, you know, uh, there's so many different kinds of uh, interpretations of it. Uh, and so I draw upon things like yoga and meditation and dynamic breathing, these kind of holistic interventions, um, interventions that just perhaps enable people to become more deeply aware of their sel themselves and others, uh, more deeply conscious of a sense of peace and a sense of love. For instance, one of my research participants described it as getting more in touch with his soul, you know, through engaging in things like meditation. Uh, and so uh, I was interested in finding out about some of the existing evidence uh, that suggests that some of these interventions might play a role in gang disengagement and criminal desistance. And interesting, one of the things that I picked up in your book, and uh, I might have missed this, um, so you can you can correct me, but I'd love to get your, your view on it. There was a, um, a couple of studies that you cited where they say that they see no difference between those that are religious uh, and those that are non-religious in criminal offending. Now, I know you, you yourself are, are a Christian. I mean, do you believe that those that are transformed in the, in the sort of the criminal justice system, do you think there is a, a, a less likelihood that they go on to re-offend or do they just become better people? I mean, what, what's your view about those that are sort of non-religious in the sort of prison system and those that are um, come to faith in some way or, or a sight and being transformed? Yeah, well, I, I certainly do think, you know, that uh, those who embrace a religious identity and really do have a transformation uh, in terms of uh, becoming for instance, a Christian while they're in prison uh, stand a much better chance of perhaps uh, desisting and staying away from um, violent crime in the future. I mean, for instance, some of the guys that I've worked with um, talked about how 
their newfound religious faith, or in some cases they had simply just rekindled an existing faith that they had kind of lost sight of for a number of years. They'd maybe been raised in a family uh, where religion there was a religious presence, but they'd fallen away from it, but they had began to revisit it while they were in prison. Uh, usually it was because they were introduced to prison chaplains, for instance, um, who providing them with a source of social support, an unconditional uh, support, somebody they could just go and talk to. And they knew that they had complete confidentiality with. And through that, they maybe started going to study groups with them, meeting other prisoners. They began to become interested in a religious faith. And what I found was it provided them with a language and a framework for change. Uh, so, for instance, they could now say, um, well, I'm not a gang member now because I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Jesus is my role model rather than, you know, the top guy in the yeah. in the gang or whatever. Um, and also they could draw, they often drew upon, for instance, those that have been converted to Christianity, drew upon uh, passages from the Bible. Um, so pieces of scripture. So, you know, in some cases, they maybe talked about how they identified with Jesus' um, struggle with um, temptation in the desert. Uh, and sometimes they talked about the themes of forgiveness in the Bible. And they believed that they too could be tempted in the future, but in the same way as Jesus did, they could now resist that temptation to go back to drugs, to go back to the life of violence. And also they believed they had been forgiven uh, by God, you know, which made a big impact on them. Um, and so I had high hopes. Now, obviously, I wasn't able to trace these guys and find out what happened to them after yeah. they left prison. But certainly their language, their narratives uh, suggested a very strong commitment towards desistance. And it was very much interrelated with their um, biblical study and their newfound faith. Yeah, interestingly, uh, touching on what you mentioned earlier, the second chapter in your book, which struck out to me again, was Warriors to Peacemakers. Now, this is yoga, breathing and meditation in Denmark, you know, where men had started these exercises. You've got a sort of spirituality side and you've got, you've got the sort of the, the meditation side. So maybe tell us, tell me a little bit about those concepts and in particularly that chapter about yoga, breathing and meditation from some of the prisoners. Yeah, well, it was an absolutely fascinating part of the research for me. Um, so um, Denmark, uh, I think, is a, is a place like um, a lot of the Scandinavian countries that has a real openness uh, towards these kinds of holistic, uh, almost kind of um, ascetic spiritual third wave practices like okay. meditation and yoga. And um, so I was fascinated when I came across um, this program over there, um, which is known as Breathe Smart, uh, and its twin program Prison Smart. Uh, and I mean, I was first introduced to it by Jacob Lund, who is the coordinator of uh, the Breathe Smart program and the Prison Smart program in Scandinavian prisons. And, um, you know, to give you an example, these guys that I was working with in, in Denmark were, had been motorcycle gang members. Um, so they were uh, real tough guys, you know, a lot Leather of jackets, Hell's dogs. Angels type looking, yeah. The Hell's Angels, yeah, it was like um, those kinds of guys. Hell's Angels, Bandidos, those kinds of um, 
motorcycle clubs, you know, they had the shaved heads, you know, they were uh, bodybuilders, they had the tattoos, uh, real tough guys. Some of them had been involved in, you know, real extreme types of violence, torture. They'd been involved in drug dealing. They'd been involved in organised crime. Some of them had murder, double murder convictions. And what were they doing when I met them? They were sitting meditating. You know, and it didn't quite add up in my mind um, initially. Uh, but they were introduced to this program through word of mouth. You know, they just started to hear it from other guys that had gone through the program over the years. And what Jacob and the other uh, coaches there do is they go and sometimes work one-to-one with these guys and sometimes they work with them in groups. And... Um, I think sometimes some of these guys, they did comment to me that when they first thought about meditation, they thought of it as being just a little bit soft, a bit feminine maybe. Um, But when they were introduced to it, they realized it was quite physical because this particular program draws upon um, the Ujjayi breath, for instance, which is a deep kind of uh, cyclical breathing process. It draws upon, uh, for instance, Um, the bellows breath, which is very deep inhalations and exhalations of breathing. Um, And also yoga postures, which are quite challenging, half a yoga postures and yoga. I could just back cross my legs, never mind some of the yoga postures. (laughs) I mean, I had a go. I went through the program myself, and I tell you, it 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 was really quite physically challenging. And so it made it seem quite tough to them, and they gradually realized it was quite masculine, actually, in their words. Um, And uh, the core focus in the program is Siddharshan Kriya Yoga. So this is based on the teachings of the Indian spiritual leader Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. Uh, who uh, formed the Art of Living Foundation in the early 1980s. And this is a global program, and it's been adopted in the Breed Smart program as well. And so it's very it's cyclical, um, dynamic breathing exercises combined with quite deep meditation that goes beyond uh, mindfulness meditation. It's almost more like a transcendental form of meditation with a mantra. And so the combination of all of those exercises and practices together um, really was having a profound effect on these guys. And what I found was after they'd been practicing for some time, um, so they were practicing in their own cells as well as doing it as part of a group. And then in some cases, they'd been released from prison by the time I met them and they were still practicing on their own. And sometimes on a Friday night, meeting a group of other guys and practicing together. And it gave them a profound sense of peace um, where a lot of them had suffered from deep psychological issues as a result of their involvement in the violent lifestyle. A lot of them had been diagnosed with PTSD, for instance. Um, A lot of them had anxiety, some of them had depression. Um, And they were finding actually these practices replaced in some cases, prescribed medication. They no longer needed to be on antidepressants anymore. Sometimes they had stopped self-medicating by drinking large quantities of alcohol uh, or taking drugs. 
uh, and they were replacing it with these practices that they found had even more of an impact uh, and a benefit for them. They felt peaceful. They had an emotional experience. Um, some of them started described experiences of crying for the first time in front of adults that they'd never done before. Sometimes they had just a feeling of great joy and peace. They slowly began to feel they had more empathy. Their relationships improved, you know, with their partners and their children in some cases. Uh, and they also no longer felt the need to react to difficult and challenging thoughts and emotions through anger, aggression and violence. They were able to leave, create a space between their thoughts and their actions. And they attributed all of this to this programme and these practices that they were engaging with. So it was really quite fascinating. Yeah, and it's interesting how your research has taken you from, you know, primary school teacher to, you know, sort of soccer violence and everything that comes with it to then gangs and then gangs has become you know gangs and then spirituality and then it's moved on to now sort of um meditation and mindfulness and so i guess maybe um how did you get into mindfulness because i know i know you go into um prisons in scotland um and you sort of um you know talk about mindfulness in these programs maybe explain what what mindfulness is how how is that different to spirituality yeah, mindfulness is, um, of course, it does have its origins in in Buddhism, uh, but it was brought to the Western world in the 1970s by John Kabat-Zinn, who formed the first mindfulness-based stress reduction clinic at the University of Massachusetts uh, there, and very much westernised it and brought it to, to the Western world. Um, and what mindfulness is, so it's now delivered and practiced in a completely secular way so people of all faiths or no faith uh, can engage in mindfulness uh, which I think um, explains its its huge appeal because it's not got any kind of religious connotation at all Um, so it's very much about being um, in the present moment and experiencing the present moment in a non-judgmental way Um, and um, uh, not reacting towards thoughts or emotions or changing, fluctuating bodily sensations, but just experiencing everything that is in that moment uh, as you find it. And so it's about um, practices, you know, where we sit Um, maybe for a period of time in meditation and direct our focus on the breath uh, and sounds around us, thoughts in our minds, as events in our minds, um, or body sensations. Sometimes we might do a body scan uh, where we become conscious of all or any sensations in different points of the body. Uh, But mindfulness is not just about sitting, practicing. Um, You can be mindful anywhere at any time. You know, so if you're walking down the street, you can have a mindful walk, you know, instead of being lost in our thoughts and thinking about the to-do lists and planning our day, um, 
or looking at our phones, which of course we're we're all doing so, so much of the time. And so what? So when you think <laughs> is mindfulness, and Ross, why does um, you've now moved into sort of you know wider criminal justice, and then you go to prisons and uh, work with incarcerated um, prisoners. So uh, what, what's driving you into that mindfulness? What what's mm-hmm. what is the key factor behind your um, support for some of these sort of less fortunate than yourself? Maybe that is the answer. I don't know, but you seem to be taking this path where you're you're always trying to help and do a step more to help people understand who they are perhaps why they've done and become better people so so what's driving you to do that yeah that's a good question um i think probably i've always had a, a an affinity with the underdog if you like um and when i look back to my own childhood years and formative years i suffered uh, from uh, quite a, a difficult debilitating physical illness um, I had Crohn's disease um, from the age of 10 and so um, you know it, I lost a lot of weight uh, I lost a lot of confidence uh, and that travelled with me through my adolescent years and into my early adult years as well in my 20s. And so I was, you know, disadvantaged a bit by that. And also there was also anxiety-related issues that came with that. So I've experienced mental health issues myself over the years. And so I've always identified with those who suffer any kind of disadvantage, whatever it might be. So whether it's um, like I did, a physical illness, mental, psychological issue or, you know, adverse childhood experiences or disadvantage like a lot of these guys that I'm working with have suffered. Um, I've always been driven really to to try and support and and help people be able to understand um, where that comes from and hopefully be able to overcome it in some small way. And I hope my research draws attention to some of those issues. Uh, But the mindfulness specifically came along for me because um, I was introduced to it um, by a therapist, actually, when I went through a CBT program myself a number of years ago now. And um, I was just quite interested in it um, and bought a book, started to read up on it a little bit more, taught myself how to to practice and then uh, did an eight-week programme where I deepened my knowledge and insight into it even more and found it was having a real impact on me in terms of dealing with stress predominantly um, low mood, anxiety. Um, And uh, so ultimately, uh, last year, I made the decision after many years now of practicing and finding the the profound impact it was having to train to be a mindfulness practitioner and coach myself. And so I went through a year-long training with Mindfulness Scotland, and I'm now a a certified mindfulness practitioner. Um, So for me, it's it's had a real profound impact on my life, and I've seen it having an impact on those that I've worked with as well. So I'm really passionate about it. Yeah, and you know, Ross, one of the things you mentioned is that you you travel the world 
um, teaching um, and educating on gang violence. Uh, and one of the things that I know that I we sort of spoke about earlier was um, Nelson Mandela's autobiography of a long walk to, to freedom. And one of the things he says in there is about it doesn't matter how hard or high the mountain is you have to climb. All you'll ever realise when you reach the top is you have many more mountains to climb. Uh, and I mentioned that to you because after we spoke, I was thinking, well, well, well what is the end state for, for, for Ross? Where, where, where does a lot of these accomplishments end? Because you seem to set yourself a goal and then you keep going. So uh, what is that? What is the driving force behind that? Because you're creating these mountains that Nelson Mandela created. You know, he had mountains that people put in front of him. You're creating your own mountains. Yeah, that's true. And my wife very much would uh, agree with that because, uh, you know, I always remember when I was studying towards my PhD, I used to say to her, once I finish this, that'll be it. It'll be a lot easier, oh, yeah. you know, and uh, then here we are, all these books later, I'm still doing Last book, reading. last presentation, last, yeah. to go to, <laughs> last mindfulness class, I'm sure, Ross, yeah. That's right. You know, so, uh, yeah, I think I do create my own mountains. And um, I think it's always about, I suppose it's a bit like being a musician, you know, you're only as good as your last track, you know, and, uh, you know, you're always wanting to do something just a little bit better or a wee bit more challenging or a bit more creative, you know. Uh, and as soon as one book or paper's finished, you think, oh, well, um, yeah, that's really good. But then something else comes along. And also I work, I'm privileged to work with such great creative people, you know, and, uh, you know, guys like James, um, Simon Harding, my other colleague in London, and uh, um, so many others I could name, um, you know, they, they really inspire you as well. You, when you're surrounded by really creative people that are passionate about what they do, it rubs off on you, which is why I love working in uh, collaboratively with other people. And so, you know, we'll have a conversation with say, oh, I was thinking about, you know, wouldn't this be an interesting project and you think oh i wasn't going to take on anything else but you know i really wouldn't be involved you are, in here's the next one yeah. <laughs> and so when you know well i sort of um mentioned so you know but the, the books that you've written on gangs you know the spirituality and rounding sort of um gangs you're starting to get into but the mindfulness you know you travel the world educating uh, about sort of um, youth sort of violence and culture you know your work has been sort of scholarly cited in google 1500 times i keep giving you the praise there all right I've got the figures for you. you know when you when you strip all those accolades away uh, you know what what is really left you know who is ross duke now what what is left when you remove all that stuff i mean what who are you day to day well, I'm a dad, um, a, a husband, I've got a 16-year-old son, um, I've got a wife, uh, so predominantly I'm a, I'm, I'm a family man, that's a really, a, a, of course, a, a important part of me. Um, I'm a Christian, you know, so I have my, my, my Christian faith um, that's really important to me and the fellowship I have with others through that. Um, I um, am a football fan. As well, you can maybe better not ask me which team in Glasgow I support. Well, it's yeah, yeah, not after your research earlier, maybe let's not even go into that. You know, hoping uh, it's an English team. Yeah, but um, so uh, you know, there's all of that, and also I have my wider spiritual life now as well with my meditation. I practice meditation every day. Uh, my my day just wouldn't 
it just wouldn't be the same if I didn't do my morning meditation. Um, I enjoy doing yoga as well. Um, I'm really into fitness. I train in the gym all the time. I do a lot of weightlifting. So there's a lot of different facets to me, I guess, you know, aside from being an academic. But I would say my academic life is very intertwined with my sense of identity as well. Being a criminologist is is a big part of who I am. Uh, and my work is uh, a real driving force in my life. It always, it always has been, really. Uh, so there's a lot of different... But I think I made the decision, just to maybe add this in, I made the decision a couple of years ago that I wanted to do a little bit more than um, just producing the academic papers and the books and maybe going and working with these great individuals I work with um, who have suffered such trauma and such disadvantage. And then I walk away and, hey, I've got the book, you know, here, but they maybe never hear about it the work yeah. again. Um, and so I made the decision that I would like to put something back in to give something to these people, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm really enjoying being able to go in and do things like mindfulness in prisons uh, and translate what I've learned through my research into pra meaningful practice that can in some way help these these, these guys. Yeah, and as a criminologist and professor, you know, and, and writer, you know, there's, there's many years left in you, um, Ross, I, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, so, so those that can see the video can see that you're, you're a young man, but you know, there's many more years left in you. But so this question might seem a bit strange, but, you know, when you look back on your scholarly work, you know, how, how do you want to be remembered? Well, thanks, Simon, for that compliment, but I don't often hear <laughs> young man as the kind of <laughs> descriptor for me these days. But uh, yeah, uh, I uh, it's a it's a good question, and um, uh, Frank Cullen, who's a distinguished professor in criminology at the University of Cincinnati, who's been a great source of support and, and guidance to me over the years. Um, I actually chaired a, a Author Meets Critics session that I had at an American Society of Criminology conference last year uh, in San Francisco. And um, he, he paid me a really lovely tribute, you know, at the end of that session when he said that how you would describe me is uh, as someone who has a special ability to relate to my research subjects to appreciate and capture the challenges in a way that is neither non-judgmental, neither judgmental, nor overly excusing. And that, to me, I thought, if I can be remembered um, in that way, I'll be, I'll be really happy. Well, that's a good quote. I wonder if there is a um, a slogan somewhere we can we can have that. But that is that is very very powerful. That might even end up on your tombstone one day. <laughs> it's, it's a good quote to have. And I guess Ross, I mean, it's been really good to talk to you um, today. Not only to learn a bit more about your work, but get to know you a bit better as to you know what drives you and the work that you do is is so valuable to to help those incarcerated because we're all searching for something, and quite often those that make mistakes or those that fall on the wrong path are often neglected by the very people that should be there really helping them. So um, it's a blessing of the work that you, you do. And I guess, you know, people can Google your name and find some of your work, but what's the best place for people to get hold of you, Ross, if they've got an interest to, to learn more? Uh, probably the best place to get hold of me is through social media always. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn as well. And I'm on Facebook. 
so I'm sure you'll be able to find me somewhere. And I'll put those in the show notes just in case with your Scottish accent or my English accent. They, they haven't got your, your last name, but I'll put that in there. But Ross Duker, um, a pleasure to talk to you today and um, continue your good work, sir. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.